True Talk, it's a pre-recorded show. to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. That's a song called um, Sara by Reem Banna. Summer is joining, uh, you know, now live. Summer, um, a lot has been happening. Good morning. Good morning, Ahmed. Ahmed. Just wanted to say that Reem Banna uh, was born in Nazareth in uh, North Palestine and uh, she passed away a few years ago from uh, cancer and we had her on the show and the song she is singing is about Sarah a little Palestinian girl uh, I think she was shot dead uh, in Jerusalem uh, when she was five years old so that's why they keep uh, hearing the word uh, Sarah but good morning Ahmed uh, Ramadan Kareem to you inshallah Ramadan Karim to you as well. And, you know, a lot has been happening in Palestine. Maybe we'll talk a little bit after our, um, with us, you know, in Israel and Palestine. Uh, we'll talk more about it with our guest that's going to be joining us. And um, this is a month of fasting. We've uh, had about six days by now. And it's still, we're still in it. So one there's another 24 days. Huh? One whole week uh, is passing. Yeah, almost one and whole week. It's going by pretty fast. So Yeah, I don't um, know how uh, this happened. Uh, three weeks uh, to go, but alhamdulillah, I am uh, <laughs> still okay. I still suffer from the cough. So every, every few seconds, I have to mute uh, the mic. Uh, but um, I am sure you have been following the news, and I'm sure also our uh, wonderful listeners are following the news. And uh, inshallah, God willing, we will be able to connect with uh, Maria uh, Zonzin. I hope I'm pronouncing her name uh, uh, correctly. But she has been very busy, Ahmed, and uh, everyone is kind of uh, interviewing her because she wrote a very interesting piece in the daily beast if people want to look at this article uh while we're talking to her it's the well, she's joining us uh, okay daily beast and what was the title of the article israelis are trying to serve democracy that never existed so in the midst of all the coverage uh, for uh, Marianne to have uh, to publish an interesting piece with this title, I think everybody wants to be talking to her. But I think she just uh, joined us. Hi, now. hi, Samar. Uh, good morning. Uh, good evening, uh, Maria. Uh, yes, it's evening now. Uh, you are maybe in Jerusalem. I'm not sure which city you are in. Uh, but Tel Aviv. 
Tel Aviv. So thank you so much really for being uh, with us uh, on a short notice. I know I was just telling our listeners that you have published a very interesting uh, piece in the Daily Beast and uh, the title is Israelis are trying to save a democracy that never existed. So I am sure it created uh, a lot of uh, interest because I think I just saw you tweeting that even maybe the Washington Post uh, uh, got a byline from your article because people our our media here in the US of course are covering the story as um, the, uh, the people are in the streets uh, like the Arab Spring there is a Hebrew Spring or an Israeli Spring and people are demonstrating because uh, they are want to preserve the democracy then you come with this article and it's kind of uh, puts people um, on a different uh, footing so I want to start, uh, Maria, by really telling us what is this judicial reform? Like without going into the details of how every group is going to benefit from it, but what is this thing? How did it start, this sto story about the judicial reform? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's really a, a power grab. It's really a way for the people in power to hold on to power and to consolidate power. Um, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, there's different uh, interests and agendas for each party. Some parties have, you know, specific interests um, in 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 weakening the Supreme Court. Uh, but I think it's important to keep in mind that the the right wing in Israel, in general, has been uh, resentful of the rule of law as it's understood in democracies and of the Supreme Court and the court system in general, because they see it, even though it hasn't actually been a major obstacle, they see it as a major obstacle to their agenda of greater Israel, of annexation, of continued, you know, um, colonial style rule. So this is something that even members of uh, Netanyahu's Likud party, uh, who aren't necessarily considered the far right or the settler right, uh, the justice minister who is leading this under uh, Netanyahu, he himself said in a conference over 10 years ago that the, the main obstacle to us continuing to expand into the West Bank is the, the Supreme Court, because they have had one ruling uh, regarding uh, certain appropriations of private Palestinian land in certain circumstances. So I think that's really um, a huge driving factor for this judicial overhaul. It, it, would, be, it would be wrong to call it a reform. Um, you know, they obviously claim that they are trying to balance the system, uh, but that's really not the case. I mean, all of the legal experts in Israel, even from the right, uh, would agree that that this is really about uh, politicizing the courts. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with also Netanyahu as a leader who is on trial and who has had um, the seat of power uh, in Israel for on and off, but basically for the last 15 years, basically since the Oslo process and since Rabin was assassinated, he's been the person dictating the discourse and he um, is on trial for corruption. And so he has been inciting against the police and the courts for years now since his indictment, uh, delegitimizing the courts. And so this is also part of that process. So some people are saying that part of what he's doing, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, is to save himself from being indicted and put on trial and sent to jail. Do you agree with the people who say this? 
I certainly think that that's part part of what's happening here. I don't think it's the whole story. Um, and the court process is a very long and drawn out process. So it could be that he would be in his 80s by the time uh, they reach a, a decision. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yes, he it, it's it's about himself uh, leaving himself a legacy, you know, being having a legacy uh, as the longest serving prime minister. He doesn't want that tainted uh, by this corruption trial. Um, and I think that if he is able to uh, change the way judges are selected, then he will be able to evade his trial. They've already talked pretty openly about changing the way uh, the laws work so that he can uh, evade uh, conviction. There are so many people who uh, do analogies between him and Trump, but I don't want to go there. I want to uh, go to the uh, to specifics now. So, for instance, I think you mentioned in your article and you categorize the people who will benefit from this judicial change. I'm not going to use the word reform as you suggested. For instance, the ultra-Orthodox. What is it uh, in it for them uh, if uh, this thing goes uh, along and is implemented? What they will get uh, out of it? So the ultra-Orthodox, who are around 10% of the Jewish population in Israel, they don't go to the army. They don't uh, go. It's mandatory in Israel, obviously, uh, for three years for men and two years for women. Um, and that community doesn't go. Uh, and they instead, they study Jewish uh, religious law. Um, they go to what's called yeshivas, um, and they study. So... The Supreme Court ruled in 2017, I believe, uh, after they tried to pass a law to, you know, to basically ratify their refusal to serve um, in law and exempt them. And the Supreme Court ruled that this uh, perpetuates inequality, that it's not uh, justified uh, because of the burden that so many other Israelis have going into the army. And so they are interested in getting this law passed and making sure that, you know, they just don't have to worry about that anymore, that it's not an issue. It's been an issue for this uh, population um, since Israel was established, uh, even though de facto they get out of it. Um, so they want that to be a law. And that's also a root of a lot of the tension and civil uh, internal civil strife between religious and secular Israelis. Because, you know, the secular middle and upper class that go to the army and go to combat units and go to the cyber units um, and the Air Force pilots, you know, they they the military is a huge part of their lives. They've risked as far as they're concerned, they risk their lives every day and they don't understand why they should do that for a population that doesn't do the same. Um, so that's their that's the ultra orthodox main interest. There are other uh, interests as well. Um, some of the parties are interested in um, separation between men and women in public spaces, or at least having more freedom to do that in their communities. Uh, they're much more insular. Um, you know, some of them are anti-gay rights, anti the gay pride parade. Um, so those are all also issues that the high court has protected because um, in Israel, there is no constitution. The high court is the main uh, mechanism with which there is some kind of uh, checks and balances on minority rights. Uh, what about, uh, sorry, uh, Maria, yeah, yeah. interrupted, but what about like nationalist groups or, for instance, uh, people like the uh, uh, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir and the Finance Minister uh, Bizel, I think, Smotrich, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but yeah. like the, the nationalists, the far-right uh, groups, 
what is it that they want more than what uh, the system already grants them, uh, especially vis-a-vis the Palestinians? But what is it that they want to get? Right. So that's, can you hear me? Yes, of okay. course. I thought I lost you for a second. So that's yeah. the third, that's the third group here of, of interested parties. Um, so they are the most radical, I guess, uh, in a sense of these groups. But as you said, you know, they already get a lot of what they want, right? There's settlements are completely a consensus in Israel. Um, and they promote, you know, a greater Israel. I mean, they, some of them even have an agenda, not only of, you know, uh, retaking Gaza, but also building a third temple on, on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I mean, so these are very radical people and they their primary interest is making sure that uh, Jewish supremacy is the priority and is the the only real driving principle of, of Israeli policy um, in all fields. So, you know, for Ben Gvir, it has a lot more to do with what's happening uh, inside uh, 1948 borders uh, with uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, he wants to control the police so that he can police areas uh, like Jaffa and and Lida and uh, Akko and Ramla and these types of places, because those are places where there were major clashes in May 2021. Um, that's also how he galvanized a lot of support, because he campaigned on this notion of uh, returning Jewish control and governance to these areas. Also, of course, the Nakab, the Negev, um, where huge uh, Bedouin communities live. Um, and of course, they're also disenfranchised and there's a lot of poverty there. And, and you know, there's a lot of socio-political issues, but he makes it specifically a Jewish Arab issue. Um, and uh, the finance minister, Batella Smotrich, um, he's n- notorious for talking about, um, you know, forced uh, segregation in hospitals between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, and he has the same agenda. Uh, he he is part of a movement that is interested in completely ethnically transferring Palestinians out of the West Bank um, and possibly even Jordan. Um, so these are these are the types of people now who are in senior um, positions in the government, um, and they are explicit and unabashed uh, in their plans. And you know, as you said, I mean, what what more could they want? Well. They want to push it even further. Um, they want all of the um, obstacles to go away, whether that's the courts, whether that's U.S. pressure, whether that's Netanyahu being more calculated. They just want to, you know, sh- push right through. So uh, tell me about the militia in detail, because uh, I, from what I read, that part of the compromise, uh, because, you know, it's very difficult to compromise with these people. Uh, so the prime minister had to give them something because of the outside pressure and uh, because maybe the White House was pressuring them and of course because of what was going on and the uh, issue with the Minister of Defense that later maybe we can talk about it. But what is it about giving Etemar bin Gavir a militia? Is it really a militia where he can roam the streets of the West Bank and arrest the Palestinians or shoot them or it's very, very concerning this idea of a militia. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this, I have to say, is uh, theater. It's smoke and mirrors. It's not something and it's not necessarily something that's going to come to pass. Um, uh, But at the same time, uh, these militias that he's talking about, he's basically I mean, just to make clear, he's talking about creating some kind of separate new 
police force that's made up of civilians who have not necessarily gone through the same training as police do, and that they would be subject directly to his authority versus the police, which is supposed to be and has been uh, largely an apolitical force that has the commander. And he, as the national security minister, can uh, create policies, but ultimately, and we've seen this now um, in these protests, he cannot tell them what to do on an operational level. So what he wants is a group of people that he can tell them operationally on a certain day at a certain time, go here and do this. And this is not for the West Bank. This is primarily uh, inside Israel. So even the border police that operate largely in the West Bank, he wants to have control over them and bring them inside Israel. He's interested in um, in the 20% Palestinian population inside Israel. He wants them uh, to know their place, as I think he would say it. Um, so this is his interest in this, you know, so-called private militia. But there's a lot of legal obstacles for him to actually get this through. And also, he demanded the same thing in the coalition negotiations to form this government three months ago. And he received from Netanyahu an agreement. Of course, it's not entirely binding, and Netanyahu is notorious for not keeping any of his promises. So he basically just asked Netanyahu again to 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 make a budget for this and to have it become uh, legislated in law. Whether or not that's going to happen has yet to be seen. But the important thing to, to to understand is that whether or not this happens, and if it did, it would be unprecedented and very problematic. But we already have uh, settler violence and we already have far right violence inside Israel. And we saw it uh, two nights ago at the protests when the right decided to show up uh, to counter the protesters and they beat a journalist. They uh, hurt several people. They intimidated many people. They chased a Palestinian driver, uh, I believe, in Jerusalem. So this stuff already happens anyway. And you could call the settler violence that we see on a daily basis. And we saw it in Hawara on a on a mass scale recently. Uh, you could call those private militias that work in some kind of uh, cooperation with the state because the state has done almost nothing to stop them. So, you know, I think this is really more about Ben Gvir getting um, normalization and legitimacy from Netanyahu for continued um, gang violence on the streets. That's what I that's what I would say. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. Uh, we're speaking to Myra Zonzheim. Uh, she is currently the uh, senior analyst with the Crisis Group. She writes for The Washington Post and The New York Times from policy and other outlets. We're speaking to her about the um, the uh, uprisings or the demonstrations that are happening, been going on for weeks now in Israel and what to make of it. And, um, and uh, now it has been, I guess, put on hold. Um, how has this been perceived, I guess, by inter the international community about uh, the you know trajectory of the Netanyahu government um, going you know about this route and how have these protests uh, impacted that perception? Well, I mean, I think you know uh, people know what Netanyahu's policies are by now, uh, but this you know the U.S. and Europe specifically, but they have invested interests and strong relations uh, economically, politically, and militarily with Israel. But at this point, Netanyahu is throwing all that under the bus um, for his own interests, and the international community is seeing very clearly. I mean, Netanyahu has been aligned more and more with the global far right for quite a while now, uh, with you know countries like Hungary 
and Brazil with Bolsonaro previously and India under Modi. So, you know, this isn't new, but uh, Israel has always been considered and, you know, it prides itself on being the supposed only democracy in the Middle East. But now he's saying very clearly, I mean, he obviously doesn't say, say it or think this way, but it's very clear from the way that the entire security establishment in Israel the you know the military elites the 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 high tech sector the most respected nobel prize laureates in economy and in you know legal issues they've all come out against netanyahu uh for turning israel from a democracy into a dictatorship as they call it so uh this is something that you know is impossible to ignore and there probably were over a half a million israelis out in the streets uh we uh, almost on a weekly basis recently uh the numbers reached almost i think in 600,000 across the country this is something um that that can't be ignored so the you know the western countries are obviously very concerned about this and uh it's netanyahu can no longer kind of hide behind it because he he formed a coalition that is unabashedly anti-democratic anti-progressive anti-gay rights uh, all the things that Israel has supposedly prided itself on being, you know, this liberal democracy. So, so that's kind of been shattered in, in in the last three months. Whether or not they'll do much about it is unclear. But we did hear Biden say that he's not inviting Netanyahu to the White House anytime soon, and that's pretty unprecedented in U.S.-Israel relations. Uh, so, you know, I think people in Israel are very, very concerned that the U.S. is going to abandon it. And we'll have to wait and see how, you know, how this is going to play out. Um, well, do you think that the, uh, that the Netanyahu government's extreme policies, are, are they indicative of a more significant trend within Israeli politics? Or, or is it just this is an isolated case? Is, is this, you know, and, and how do you foresee the future of the Israeli politics if uh, things keep going this way? I mean, it's a good question. Um, the you know the Israeli body politic is is right wing. Um, you know, right wing on the the Palestinian issue, of course, and also right wing um, possibly on other issues, uh, depending on how you define right wing. But um, on, on the major issues of, of of Palestine, they are to the right, and that includes the center and the opposition and the supposed you know center left uh, in Israel. They are. They are all. There's no longer, you know, talk of of a two state solution of of a two state solution. There's the occupation almost doesn't exist. Um, so Israel is a, is a right wing uh, place. Um, and so what we see today is the culmination of years of of entrenching uh, this right wing uh, ideology. And you know, it has to do with a lot of factors that include uh, the failure of the peace process and uh, the fact that Israel has been able to act uh, with impunity for so long. Um, so this is a trajectory that isn't isn't surprising. Um, it's and it's a combination of factors that also have to do with uh, Netanyahu being so powerful, and uh, splitting the right between those who refuse to work with him and those that will. We we got this government because those the far right were the only people that were willing to work with him. Um, so that's that's the trajectory that Israel's on, and um, it, it's becoming more and more you know insular. I mean. It has yet to be seen. I mean, Israel has normalized relations with several Arab countries, and I don't believe that the UAE is really interested in um, putting its foot down on the Palestinian issue. I think it's made that pretty clear. Mm -hmm. So it, 
you know, Netanyahu's uh, approach that uh, he doesn't need to make peace with the Palestinians to make peace with everybody else or not really peace, but economic, uh, you know, relations is is has proven correct. I mean, the U.S. supports it. The Arab uh, Gulf countries are interested. Um, So this has changed, you know, the rules of the game. So Israel is able to continue a pace. But right now, because his own. Uh, citizens are are up in arms, and because he has so blatantly, you know, just decided to throw it all, you know, that he he had a good thing going in the sense that he was able to kind of do what he wants um, and still be considered a liberal democracy uh, somehow. Uh, of course, my article, you know, rips that apart because that's obviously not been the case. Uh, but the question is, is, is anybody going to make Israel pay a price for what it's what it's done? And um, and you know, ironically. It might have to eventually pay that price because of its own of its own internal issues. Right. I mean, it, and that's the thing that these are, are people that are demonstrating in the streets. Uh, are they? Do they like? Do they understand what democracy is, or do they just feel like you know, uh, democracy is just for them? Is it just for the Jewish community? Because obviously, if they're paying attention to what's happening to the Palestinians, that's and the occupation and apartheid that's going on there, that's not democracy. So are they protesting because now they feel like their liberties are at stake and or are they, you know? Yes, that's uh, that's right. Oh, okay, so if you but can elaborate it a little bit more, because obviously, like you said, it, democracy never existed. Uh, what do you mean by that? Because from Western media and from Washington, this is the only democracy in the Middle East. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, a democracy is a spectrum and, you know, America also has a lot of flaws in its democracy, like major flaws. So obviously there's no perfect democracy. Um, That's that's obvious. But the the protesters are interested in preserving the status quo. They want Israel to remain um, as they see it, a democracy. Now, you know, even without the occupation and the, the you know, the issue of Israel's, you know, growing borders, even inside 1948 Israel, you have structural inequality with Palestinian citizens. You have, um, you know, horrible discrimination um, against Palestinian citizens. And, you know, that is is different because Israel has treated them on a different level than it treats uh, Palestinians in East Jerusalem. It's, it's fragmented them into different sets of rights. So you could argue that you could improve their rights within Israel. But the the bottom line is that the same government that occupies millions of Palestinians and puts Gaza under siege is the government that that these Israelis have. Now, the people who are protesting are almost exclusively Jewish. There's almost no Palestinian citizens on the streets. Um, and many of them have expressed why that is, because, you know, where were the Jews when all these horrible things happened to them and they didn't come out and support them? So, the Palestinian citizens are obviously very concerned, and they are going to be the first in line um, to be, get hurt by by this judicial overhaul if it goes through. But um, but they haven't been a part of this civic democracy uh, for Jews only. And it's important for me to point out that this protest movement is is opening up questions about what Israel is and what it should be, which are very very mm. important. Um, uh, when I go out to those protests, there's there's very few people there that I identify with personally as far as their slogans. I mean, they're screaming democracy, but that doesn't really mean that much. Um, so it's it's problematic, but at the same time, it creates a huge opportunity. And the people who are anti-occupation and anti-apartheid uh, amongst the Jewish population do go out and protest and do provide the, those messages as well. 
And because of the settler movement's power in government now and the violence that they saw in Hawara, these are things that are, I think, starting to open up people's eyes a little bit more and could create some cracks in the system. But the bottom line is that this is a, a an internal Jewish protest to preserve rights for Jews. Unfortunately, that's that's the discourse it, at this point. So some have described it that this is a war between you know secular Jews and religious Jews, or uh, secular Zionist and religious uh, Zionist. Uh, would that be accurate? Because you know they're basically trying to to uh, fight over the definition of an identity of a Zionist Israel, uh, you know, it's not an Israel or a place that where everyone has equal rights. So is it really a struggle between the secular uh, Zionist and the and the religious Zionist? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't cut across that way perfectly. But there, yeah, a lot of the protesters are secular and a lot of the people who are interested in this judicial overhaul are religious, but of course there's plenty of religious liberal Jews who are, um, you know, progressive, relatively speaking. Um, so I, I don't know if I would say that it cuts across secular religious, even though that's one of the ways it, I would say more it's, it's liberal versus illiberal. Um, it's mm -hmm. national nationalist versus, I mean, the, the protesters are also nationalists, but they, they want there to be some checks and balances. They want Israel to prosper uh, and enjoy all the economic and political benefits it gets in the world. So they're just a little bit more practical about it. Um, but they, you know, so it's it's a liberal versus liberal, religious versus secular. Uh, but there is a, you know, a younger generation of Israelis who who I think are realizing that, that there's a cognitive dissonance here. Um, but I think the, you know, the interesting uh, dynamic that we're seeing is that the far right in power right now is is almost it's anti it's kind of anti-establishment it's anti the military and the military is trying very hard because you know they're the ones who have to deal with uh, all the outbursts of violence so so they are you know you can tell even though they are subject to the political echelon you can tell that they're very uncomfortable with the situation that these people in, in power are basically con consistently inciting violence and they have they have to pick up the pieces so i think uh that dynamic is playing out and and will be very interesting to see you know what what happens there because the military and the internal security service um they're very upset about how things are spiraling out of control um they and they that's why they've warned that netanyahu needs to put a stop to this um so that's also i think uh an interesting uh, tension that we're seeing. So it's it's it cuts across a few different lines. Right. As far as if, you're just, if you're just joining us, this is uh, True Talk on WNF. We're speaking to Myrav uh, Zanzheim. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Journalist Zanzheim. Uh, okay, Zanzheim. Um, uh, journalist and currently a senior uh, uh, analyst with the Crisis uh, uh, Group, and. Uh, so do you think some suggested that this is the splinter between both sides is just too great and you know even suggested breaking up the country that there's two types of Israel and they're not going to be able to coexist and um, each side should just you know maybe partition the place uh, is are people actually uh, serious about that or what's the solution I mean it doesn't seem it seems like things may get worse maybe there'll even be a violence between the groups um 
uh, are people, you know, what's the feeling uh, about these two uh, vastly different groups coexisting in Israel? Yeah, I mean, there, there's no talk here about partition and, um, you know, splitting up the Jewish state or anything like that. But there is a constant tension uh, between various groups. And in general, as you probably heard before, Israel is kind of very tribalist. You know, there's a lot of different groups. That's also why the political landscape is so fragmented. There's tons of political parties. Um, so, so you know, it's, there's not, it's not a monolith. I mean, Israel is very... Um, diverse within its Jewish communities, um, and they all kind of want different things. But I think the majority um, just want, you know, to have their rights. They're just individual rights and not worry about it. They don't think about the Palestinians. That's not something that interests them. They just want to be able to live their lives. Um, and, 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 you know, Israel has somehow managed for 75 years to make that work. But uh, the religious, uh, you know, the religious tensions uh, to to kind of you know keep the civil issues in Israel like marriage and burial religious have continued to be you know pushed back by more progressives, and uh, we're going to continue to see that stuff happening. And I think the fact that Israel has been in a conflict or a crisis or you know a control how a system of control over Palestinians for so long has meant that it has it hasn't had to deal with these internal civil issues as much, and so that is coming up now. Um, and, the, and, you know, they're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. But, you know, we've already seen over the last 10 to 20 years, um, a lot of um, secular, educated, middle, upper class uh, Israelis leaving. Uh, a lot of people leave, uh, whether it's because the economy here is, is, isn't is really difficult and expensive or because the religious uh, communities are growing um, or because of the occupation and, and they don't want to live here anymore and serve in the army. I mean, those it's a smaller group. But you, you see that happening. So Israel is becoming more and more, uh, it's projected to be more and more religious um, and 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 poor, um, like poor, you know, the gap between rich and poor. And that's um, a trajectory that's going to definitely hurt the people who, who are staying here. I know, uh, Marie, uh, Mayrav, you have to leave, but very, very quickly, do you see a tension uh, growing between the White House and the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and his group, there has been some exchanges, and I think Biden was very blunt, and he said he's not going to invite him to the White House, not anytime soon. Um, yeah, I mean, Israel is putting the White House in a very difficult position. I mean, the, the Biden administration is is a highly pro-Israel administration. It's allowed, it, it came in saying, you know, after Trump, it didn't reverse almost anything that Trump's done. It's allowed Israel to do as it pleases. And yet, you know, they still managed to take Biden off. Um, I, I, you know, I, you could say it's a crisis, except that the U.S. has yet to um, take any action. Um, I, I do think that the fact that he's not inviting Netanyahu, he's they have essentially boycotted Smotrich and Ben Gvir, um, is major. Uh, it's 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 major, and and Netanyahu doesn't seem to be backing down. So that that's something that's going to continue to to be at loggerheads. But the real, you know, the real proof in the pudding will be if the U.S. starts to put its foot down, because the U.S. has been not only in aid, but also in uh, political, uh, you know, backing at the U.N. and, and, and other international forum. It has always allowed Israel to, to do as it pleases. So that will be the real test. Uh, but I, I think... I want to thank... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. 
No, just Israel's image as a liberal democracy is what allows mm -hmm. the U.S. to continue to operate this way. And if Israel is fully and explicitly, you know, no longer can no longer claim to be that, then the U.S. will have a much harder time, specifically the Democratic Party, in justifying all of this support. I want to thank you, Mayrav Zonshine, for being on True Talk. She's a journalist and a senior Israel analyst with the Crisis Group. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Maria. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, for our listeners, uh, again, I mentioned that she has written a very interesting piece uh, in the Daily Beast, and uh, I would suggest that you read it. Um, I was hoping that she would stay the whole hour, but uh, she has plenty of things to do. Um, uh, again, uh, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. And uh, Ahmed and I, I think, have a few minutes left. But listen to this uh, song, Mautini. Mautini, 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 Al-Jalal Al-Jamal, to True Talk on WMNF 88.5. This is a song called Mautini. Uh, Summer wanted this song. Why did you want it played? This is, this is by um, a poet, a Palestinian uh, poet. 
and it is considered kind of the um, I can't say a national anthem, but uh, like the the song that Palestinians would consider represents them because Montanisius means my homeland, my country, and as people know or might not know, but we are the uh, missing link in all that is happening that you see on TV and uh, what do you mean? Missing. We are the Palestinians who are not enjoying any fruits of democracy because some people, if you follow Twitter and some coverage, of course, away from democracy now and alternative media, uh, people are talking about what is going on as a, a proof that it's the only democracy in the Middle East. Really, uh, they are demonstrating risking their lives because they want to preserve democracy. But uh, what is missing from this is what about the rest of the population, not only the Palestinians who live under occupation and under siege in Gaza, but under occupation in the West Bank and Jerusalem and everywhere, but even the Israeli Palestinian citizens, the Palestinians who um, never left in 1948 and were not uh, wiped out or uh, went through the massacres, who survived the creation of the state, uh, they don't have uh, democratic uh, uh, practices. Uh, and this is something that we should talk about maybe later in the show, not this time, but bring somebody from there because, um, you know, my husband's cousins live there and uh, has, have never left. And I was shocked that they cannot own a house and they cannot buy a house. And although they are Israeli citizens, you know, they have the Israeli passport. Their father was the Muslim judge, like he was paid by the Israeli government to be a judge uh, to deal with issues related to marriage and divorce and inheritance and all that. But they can buy a house or own a house. They can, I mean, the amount of restrictions they have. Uh, so there are, I think, 40 to 50 laws for the Palestinians who, who have Israeli citizenship that discriminates against them. So it's a very selective democracy. It is democracy for you if you are Jewish. So imagine that there is an American constitution and it's only for Protestants. Doesn't include Catholics or Muslims or Jews or atheists or uh, Mermans or uh, Lutherans or God knows what. So that's, we are the missing link so this is what I was trying to say. Mountainy is my homeland. Uh, and uh, what is going on in uh, Israel is not, uh, does not represent what democracy is about. When you say Mountainy, my homeland, where is your homeland? My homeland yeah. is uh, the geographic area between the river and the sea. And that's why people misunderstand. What, what, what do you say between the river and the sea? The what river, river, what sea? Uh, well, people should know the map, Ahmed. It's the Jordan no. River and the Mediterranean. And that's what very, very quickly, Mariav, she didn't have a, a chance to uh, continue um, to say, but she was talking about the finance minister when he was in uh, London a few days ago and he was addressing a group of uh, people listening to his uh, fanatical 
things that he was saying because he just said, uh, you know, we have to wipe out a whole country, a whole city in Palestine. But anyways, he had a map where it included Jordan and I think parts of Saudi Arabia. But what I was able to see that he considers Israel to be the whole geographic area of the country, the neighboring country of Jordan, the, the, the Jordan River, and the whole of Palestine or what is now Israel. So anyways, when the Palestinians say mountainy or they say from the river to the sea, they mean from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, the historical place where we existed there for thousands of years. People think when Palestinians say Palestine or mountainy from the river to the sea, that it means that we want to get rid of the Jews who are there or uh, kill them or somehow do something to them. No, it means to have a democracy, a democracy mm -hmm, for the whole people who live there. One democratic, not ethnocentric, not religious state, but a state where everyone who lives there or thinks he's associated to that part of the land uh, will live under a true democracy with a constitution. Is there, I mean, what's, when they say, oh, you know, that Israel is under threat and surrounded by all these enemies, uh, I mean, the Palestinians, including you, have a problem living in the same country with Jews and living under the same rule of law, same constitution, same rights as everyone else, like like kind of similar to what we have here. Like here in America, we have one constitution. We don't have one set of rules for black people, different set of laws for you know white people or one set of laws for Christians and a different set of laws for um, everyone else. Um, is that the kind of is that what you envision as uh, the proper solution for that area? And do other Palestinians also agree with that? I can generalize and talk about uh, all Palestinians, but most Palestinians, and even the PLO, and uh, you know they 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 well, said PLO is who is the PLO just for our listeners? Yeah, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which later on became some kind of a political entity when they signed the Peace Oslo Accords and it became the Palestinian Authority and all that. They did mention that they want to have a one democratic state. So many Palestinians see that this is the only viable solution because for people like myself who visited there three times, you know, it is you cannot have two states because the, the land is disconnected. It's not congruous. Con I can't pronounce the word. It's yeah. not connected. So, for instance, it's like having a nation state with, let's say, an embassy and an airport and an and borders. Uh, and But part of it is in Tampa and part of it is in Miami. So how do you get from Tampa to Miami? And, 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 the, and the part that's between is a different country. And then, and not only that, but it's like islands, within, kind of like uh, land but islands. Within Tampa, within Tampa, okay, mm -hmm. there are, uh, uh, let's say, what they are condos, you know, big, huge, uh, uh, populated condos that are for the other <laughs> country, other nation, between Tampa and uh, and Miami. So it's not doable. 
it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And then you have it's, something. It's kind of becomes like, you know how those Indian reservations are? There's an mm -hmm. Indian reservation here in Tampa. Exactly. There's but, an Indian reservation in South Florida. I, I don't I don't know if they're actually part of the same tribe because I, I don't I'm not that familiar with them, but it's as if you have these small little areas and you know, one here, one there, and there's no way to connect between the two. Exactly. Um, but there is something very important because people always either point fingers at the Arabs that they are not democratic. So now I hope they understand that. This is really not the only democracy in the Middle East, Israel. But there is something very important, Ahmed, and ingrained in the psychic of the West in particular, because they created these laws. And it's called uh, the uh, international law. It's called the Geneva Convention. Uh, it is called uh, the Roma. Uh, uh, I forgot the name, the Roma something. Uh, but since the establishment, uh, since after World War One and World War Two, all these laws were put and created by the West. Okay, uh, rights of what happens during a war. Um, what do you do with the population? Who is responsible for feeding them? Uh, what happens when there are refugees? So uh, it is not like the uh, Indian reservation here because it's not a matter of just giving me a house to live in or a piece of land. What about the millions of Palestinians who are refugees and live in refugee camps in, uh, uh, in uh, Lebanon and Syria and all these places? And don't tell me to give them citizenship and, uh, and wake up in the morning and stop being Palestinian, stop using Palestinian accents, stop eating Palestinian food and become Syrian or become Lebanese or become Kuwaiti because I, I do not want to be any of those things. I am a Palestinian. I have my land. I can see it. Okay. But you prevent me from going there. However, international law that was put by the very West that is telling me I should uh, forget the international law <laughs> gives me the right to return. Like the Ukrainians, uh, like the Syrians, when Bashar al-Assad was an, uh, considered an enemy of the West. Everybody wants the Syrians to go back to Syria. So why not the Palestinians? Mm. So, you, uh, so the problem is not only Ahmed. I mean, the analogy of Native Americans is important but it's not sufficient. It takes away from the larger problem is that according to international law that was put out for the world to follow by the West that supports Israel, tells me that my mom, who was born in Palestine, can return. Israel stops them from that as well as the West stops them from that. Meanwhile, they allow, um, no matter, you know, what country you're born in, if you're a Jewish person, you can, you can, and you've never had any history or family history in Israel, you can migrate to Israel and get citizenship right away. Yes. And that's interesting, Ahmed, that you mentioned that because the, when I went to Nazareth, no, no, Akka, Akko, where uh, that's where my husband was born, actually. Akko, uh, it's on the Mediterranean. And uh, this is where uh, there was a very famous battle for Napoleon Bonaparte there, by the way. But anyways, um, I noticed that there are so many churches and the bells are ringing. And I never crossed my mind that Akka, you know, uh, had such a huge 
Christian population. So I was asking my husband's uh, nephew, like, why are there so many churches in Akka? He said, you know, uh, something interesting happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So many people would say, oh, I'm Jewish and my grandma is Jewish and my uh, next neighbor was Jewish. So they would let them in, 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 in because they always need to populate the land because the number of Palestinians is larger than the number of uh, Israelis or Jews in Palestine. If you add the West Bank and Gaza to the, the equation. He said, you know, after several years, their true colors came out or they became more comfortable to profess their faith. Somewhere we're they, I don't want to cut you off, but we're uh, but they of are uh, Christian. So they uh, they revived the churches uh, and, and revived the true churches. talk WMNF Tampa and PR News is next. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Tampa.